Welcome back to Samsara Audio. This is Matthew. I've got our guest Javier Rivera today. Really excited. I haven't chatted with Javier in a little while. And so we're just going to take some time to catch up, chat about what he's been up to lately, what he's been reading, what he's been thinking about. Um, I really like Javier's writing. It's really unique. I highly recommend it. And I will definitely link it in the show notes. Um, but hey, how are you doing today, Javier? Pretty good, man. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. A little chaotic with school, but yeah, other than that. Nice. Yeah, you just started back. Um, you're uh, you're studying at the University of Arizona, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good school. Um, what are you What are you currently working on this semester? Um. So, I've recently picked up a minor in sociology. Oh. Mainly because that seemed to be like the fastest minor to do, actually. <laughs> but I'm actually really liking it. Um, and it's even making me wonder if I should switch over to a sociology track as a kind of PhD kind of graduate aim. Um, mainly because I started realizing that actually sociology kind of has a lot of movable elements that I enjoy. Like I think I can incorporate a lot of my thinking philosophy, psychology, religion into that whole field. <laughs> so I think it's a very malleable field to play with. Yeah, I know you're studying religion right now. I mean, there's yeah. obviously the sociology of religion is a huge field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love the social phenomenon of religion, too. Um, that's mm -hmm. definitely a big part of my own research, uh, you know, coming at it from a psychoanalytic perspective. And I know that that's, that's a lens that you take as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, how did you get into the study of religion? Um, I would say it probably has to do with my own, my own personal kind of like <laughs> dib dabbling around with whatever religion. Cause I think when I first joined the army, I realized that, I mean, I was born Christian. I was born seventh day Adventist. I didn't really like the rules but I also didn't understand any of the theology really. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember just joined the army and I was thinking like, you know, at this point when I say I'm Christian, I'm just kind of saying this nominally. I'm not really like, I don't, I don't even know what this means anymore. Yeah. So I kind of just like dropped it. Um, and then I just sort of pursued things that I was kind of told to be afraid of, like, you know, polytheism and, these other kind of like atheistic religions like Buddhism and, um, and I explored all of them, you know, uh, to a certain degree, you know, Taoism, Buddhism and Hinduism. And, um, and then I think I converted to Islam <laughs> like at a certain point. Um, so that was also, I, I mean, yeah, I just, the whole thing is like, you can tell, I just, I, I didn't become Jewish. I, I think that's probably the thing at that point. <laughs> you haven't checked off the bingo card yet. You need no. to convert to Judaism. That's right. Although, uh, you know, that if you aren't circumcised, that definitely could be a quite a, that could be a big leap for you. Yeah. It could be a little painful at this point in your life. Yeah. Well, you know, luckily, <laughs> well, Seventh-day Adventist is basically Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's the funny part. So I was like already in. You're like, yeah, I, this is looking really familiar, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Well, you, uh, you, you spent time in the Army. That kind of makes you a little bit of this kind of non-traditional student, older than your peers. What is that experience like being older than your classmates, uh, you know, going back to school after having kind of some real-world experiences, quote-unquote? <laughs> so I think I really had that collision uh, last semester where I was like, you know, you'd like to think that, I mean, I'm 30, so I don't really think I'm old. But then also when you talk to like a 21 or 20 year old, you're like, the difference is huge. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're like, you know, and, and again, it's not that I they can't even tell that I look old. It's just all of a sudden I start talking and they're like they get confused and they're like, how old are you exactly? Because it seems like you've lived like a lifetime, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of embarrassing uh, now. Um, and, and really like the terms you use all really just snitch on you. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's, if I were to give the label to the experience, I mean, it's, it's something I, I didn't think was gonna matter. So it doesn't matter, but it's a, it's definitely a very interesting interaction, like, uh, to have. (laughs) So I think a big question I have, cause I mean, I've thought about going, back to school like for more graduate work but i feel like after i graduated from college and then i worked in software startups it just totally changed the way that i think about things and now it's like really hard to get back into the like do a paper take a test defend a thesis sort of thinking like the way that education in our country shapes your mind and kind of the way that it channels you into thinking certain ways and producing certain artifacts is um it's difficult for me to almost to kind of get back into that. I f- it feels constraining. It doesn't, it feels like a lot of kabuki theater rather than focused on outcomes and things that matter. I'm wondering, have you wrestled with that yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I find myself like last semester, I found myself for the first time, I felt extremely alienated mainly because everything that these professors claim as important or ethical in my opinion is merely to cover over a gap in the educational structure like i I basically hate hearing anything ethically in academic institutions mainly because it seems to be the kind of perfect covering for the gap of like look actually this knowledge isn't even maybe even real knowledge because you just want to cover over that, uh, you know, that failure with this ethical imposition of like, no, you shouldn't cheat. No, you shouldn't or whatever. But it's like um, all of these um, advocation, like plagiarism, chat GBT, like the whole scare is about chat GBT, especially for the humanities, maybe not STEM science. STEM science has found some utility to it. Um, but the humanities is deeply afraid of it um, for some reason. And <laughs> I just I just feel like to me, it's just like all this does is it just means that we need to rethink thinking, rethink what all this means. But nobody wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it falls under ethical obligations. And, and I and I struggle with that. So to kind of restate what you're saying, you're like, you think that kind of the old norms of academia, they just kind of exist as this 
structure that uh, they attempt to push on you as ethical, like it is unethical to take from somebody else mm-hmm. um, and to use their insight. Um, but really what all that does is cover over the fact that human beings are these just constant insight churning out machines. Like yeah. we're able, like we're constantly just, we're like ChatGPT in the sense where we're constantly getting trained on our data set, whatever we're reading, what we're talking with other people, um, our experiences, they're all this data set that's kind of training our brain model in a, in a way. Um, am, am I kind of getting that right? Yeah. I mean, it, there's something about, there's something about this, like it, it, to me, it's not a coincidence that they're afraid of a machine when they've been training us like machines. Mm. <laughs> like, like to me, that is like the, probably the most ironic thing is like the institution runs like a machine but they're now afraid of being replaced by another machine. And I think that follows under the sort of ethical kind of impositions rather than, okay, what this means actually is we don't know what it means, but we need to rethink what it means. Um, Of course, everyone's going to kind of scoff at that because, well, you still got people paid for college. They paid for universities. They still got to run like a business. So when do we ever have time to rethink what is really happening here? So it has to kind of fall under some type of law um, being imposed to not do this. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful opportunity for academia, but yeah, um, they're not going to take it exactly because the reality is that like education was oriented towards the production of useful compliant subjects in kind of the larger production machine of society. And the reality is that a human being with all of their biology and their dysfunction is never going to be able to be as efficient as a machine. So once the machine comes along, well, uh, you know, we're outmoded. And now uh, school is designed to turn us into machines when uh, the machine is now here and it can do the job better than we ever could. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. It's, I mean, we're facing down an existential crisis for, for education and I think education needs it. It's going to be great. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it, it, it needs, um, it needs that and it needs that kind of self-reflective, um, negativity that the educate like the institution doesn't want to face and i think that's mm-hmm. what i hear when i when i hear like you know teachers talking about plagiarism and 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 all you know don't use this machine make it your work i mean what does it mean to really make it your work and that, that's the thing like nobody wants to really question in the first place like is knowledge really mine you know do i you know, it's, it's funny that you read all these philosophers. They don't cite shit. <laughs> you know, they don't cite yep. nobody. Yep. And, and, and yet we have to be these kind of machines that give you like almost links to everything that I'm saying. Yeah, it, I, I recently reread Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. And he kind of, he's saying something similar in this essay where he's like, uh, He's basically saying that the education that we currently have and the behavior that is 
promoted in society couldn't produce the great figures that we so lionize and look to. Like you couldn't produce Moses in the way that we currently promote people. And yet we look to Moses as this incredible lawgiver, as this emancipatory leader, as this person who created this new paradigm. Like we couldn't produce the very people that we so idolize. And it seems to be something really broken, but we have to, we have to be able to figure out how can we do what they did, which ironically the thing they did was to throw everything out the window. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what's interesting here, um, I see a connection to kind of what I've seen you thinking and writing about lately about um, Julie Reche's negative psychoanalysis. I, in the context of this discussion, it makes me think about, um, and and George Bataille is kind of here too. Mm. Us as human beings, kind of the thing that makes us different from machines is our wastefulness, is the way that we can orient our lives around purely u- something purely useless. In fact, I think you recently um, wrote something about this. You were talking about there's just no room for impotence or uselessness in our in our society in our psyche at all anymore uh, i'm curious if you would just just chat about that like wh- what are you thinking about that yeah i mean this is probably like the biggest um idea for me in the sense of like thinking about and, and dwelling on because i i think and this is why i i love julie rush's work because it just made me think about how uncomfortable we are with the idea of helplessness the idea of failure but but the problem with failure too is like we keep we keep making failure into some positive project like it's like okay yeah you're going to fail but you're going to get better you'll you'll just fail better um and i i just i just feel like that's another way to just not deal or bear with that sort of wastefulness right it, we we somehow decide to take that um you know um thing and try to make it useful and and i feel like the one thing we don't know how to do is exactly those things (laughs) we don't know how to be helpless we don't know how to fail where there is no aim (laughs) how to let uselessness be useless (laughs) yes yeah letting uselessness be uselessness And, and and that's something that i feel like is only really thought about in like psychoanalysis, philosophy and certain elements. Obviously I'm probably pushing against like pragmatism and utilitarianism um, here, but yeah. Yeah. I'm, this is one thing too, that I love about religion. Um, You know, as a Christian, I think that Christianity exemplifies this in a number of respects. Obviously there are, interpretations of it that don't but i think all of the attempts to take religion and to make it useful have been like pretty disastrous and i think that you know in the early 20th century this is part of what karl bart was trying to push back against against this schleiermacherian or you know trollian sort of version of christianity where it's like um christianity is this uh it's this uh, transcendent social ethic, for instance, um, and that its value is the ethical behavior that it produces. Um, and I think Bart is kind of pushing back against this and he's like, no, it's actually just 
valuable for its own sake. And I think religion allows us to be able to engage in that just like useless for its own useless sake behavior, like sacrifice, ritual, worship, these sort of activities. Is that something you've noticed or been thinking about at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, that's something that I always push against, even like as a religious studies major. I don't like, I don't like it when people reduce it to an ethical, strictly ethical thing. But then I also don't like it when they try to say, "Oh, religion is just simply a social function." Mm-hmm. Like, it's there's it's more than I mean, it's more than that in the sense that there's so much waste. <laughs> there's so much waste and. It's like when you think about like prayer, like, okay, I mean, we can argue for a social function, but like also there is something like I remember like my grandmother, she wasn't like a very educated woman, but something that she always did, which was probably would be really bizarre for people now would be like, she has a second grade education. And when she hears your problem, she goes, okay, let's pray. Like (laughs) that was it. That was the, the most that she ever did. (laughs) and yet it was like the most i guess you could say comforting thing even though in 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 retrospect it really did nothing in a way um other than maybe provide comfort for those that you know wanted you know something to be done but um i mean there's a lot to go into that but yeah yeah i um I, my, my grandmother's like that too. <laughs> it's uh it's really interesting. And I, I think that these, one of the things that I see in that attitude is there's this, um, I, I do think it's a sense of humility that it's, it's being okay with, I don't have the answer right now. I know that I'm small in this world and it's this posture of like, we can't solve this, but we can engage in this relationship of dependence on something greater. And I think that even just taking that posture is really revolutionary because it's actually like that posture of dependence and humility. It kind of cuts against the modern ethos of um, we're going to figure it out. We're going to optimize it. We're going to control it. We're going to analyze it. We're going to break it down. Um, It's you live. It's a different it's living in a different type of universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think. You know, it's one of those things where, I mean, if you really think about it, getting to the point where you have to pray is really a big vulnerable moment, Mm. (laughs) probably for a lot of people, at at least if we're talking about not in a regimented sense, but like in a sense of like a responding to something. I think Mm -hmm. that is when prayer is probably the most vulnerable um, element and it's you know, and, and you could say in a pragmatic society, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, we have to do something. We have to decide. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a sense in which like prayer is almost like the equivalent of Zizek's uh, um, don't act, think, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's almost it's like the like don't act, pray, you know, and like instead of instead of instead of engaging in the act of mastery and optimization and control, stop for a moment and engage in the dependency posture, the humility posture and become this kind of immovable negative force that just kind of waits. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, and then when you really think about it, it's probably the most, at least in, in our society right now, it's the most difficult thing to do mainly because 
we're not isolated from each other. So there's always somebody kind of poking from the curtains, kind of saying like, well, what are you going to do? What mm -hmm. should we do? We have to do something, right? And even, you know, even just being like, for example, like I know your father, like it's, it, you can, you can literally feel the existential pressure to need to do something mm -hmm. just because we are given a kind of role that maybe we didn't even ask for, but it's really hard and it's really hard to remain in a posture that is like, Hey, I think we should just do this move where we pray instead of act. <laughs> and that may not always be taken in the most graceful sense. And I, and I think that's also part of the negativity that's involved. Yeah. I, I, I love that. It's, it's a great meditation. It's so difficult to resist the urge to act when I think a lot of times the urge to act is a trap. Yeah. You know, it, it the, in, in, in your haste, you make either, if not the wrong decision, you don't give yourself the space to find a better decision. Um, I think that this is kind of what Nietzsche's critique of pity is doing a little bit. Like he's, he's saying that when you see somebody who's suffering, you begin to suffer in yourself and your haste to resolve the other person's suffering comes from your haste in order to extinguish your own suffering. And what happens is you actually end up making a decision that may not be the best for them because your goal is not ultimately to extinguish their suffering. It's to extinguish your own. And so there's the sense in which compassion actually requires us to kill compassion because compassion is the thing that will compel us to move too quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, because like I've been reading, so I, I think there's an argument to be said, like, I think if people looked at compassion as a kind of dying, but like a dying that's probably worth embracing, um, then we could probably be more compassionate. But I think we typically, like you said, we typically look at compassion like, I'm going to be able to help you. I want to relieve your suffering. But it, the moment you do something like that. It's almost the one thing we don't see, the trap that we don't see is exactly what you pointed out. We interpret it like I am here to alleviate your suffering, but actually the thing that is hurtful to say is actually you make me feel so uncomfortable mm. that I cannot bear it. Yeah. And I have to raise you up because seeing you like this is destroying me. And that element is where you can really see the visceral negativity of trying to bear. And I would say that's where compassion is like dying, but nobody wants to take compassion like dying. They want to take it more like I can resurrect you or something. <laughs> um, I, I can help you. But the question of help is always strange. Like, what do we mean by helping you? Because um, the other is such a unknown, or you could say a barred other that we just we're anxious about trying to understand what they actually want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. There's so much there. I, I love the way you put that. Like you make me uncomfortable. And so there's, there's a sense in which compassion is deeply implicated in this idea of anxiety too, because it involves this proximity to another. 
And once, once, you know, once we get that proximity to them, we start to have all of these feelings <laughs> that start to go on where we're like, just looking into that face, just seeing that face, that encounter with that other generates all of these feelings where we feel, we feel compelled to do something, where we feel suffering, where we want to understand their desire, what brought them here. And there's like not an answer to that question ultimately. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's really, really scary about that encounter because it's, you are opening yourself up to all of that pain and there's no actual solution to that pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that is, that is really, I mean, it's, it's easy, you know, it's easy to talk about, but I mean, the more I pay attention to it, like if you just see like a depressed person, unhappy person, it makes people so uncomfortable, like unbearably uncomfortable. They either have to make them happier in some way or just completely distance themselves off from that, you know? And so you really see it like it, we still do a kind of distancing, even with this positive action. And I, I think, I think if people look at compassion as the fact that actually this unbearable suffering is actually the constitution of compassion rather than this external thing that we need to alleviate as me being compassionate. Yeah. The, the move to project the suffering out into the other is, is a trick and a yes. trap. If you can just be more honest, you're like, the suffering is in here yeah. and I don't understand the suffering that's out there. And I'm, I'm in probably as hopeless of a position as this other person. Mm -hmm. Then you can, resist the mental traps that are like just all of the all the bells and whistles in your mind going off like you got to do something you got to do something you got to do something um yeah i really i think that that's a lot of where i think that's a lot of how compassion has been weaponized in our current political system you know both bureaucratically both in terms of ideology um the the need to do something has so overwhelmed any sort of posture of standing, stopping, saying, is should we be doing this? Is this the right choice? Because the demand to do something overrides every other consideration. Yeah. I mean, it, what's crazy about this is like even intention has become uh, weaponized in the sense of like, we we use intention to console ourselves about the unknown that we could have never ever anticipated like you know if you accidentally kill somebody if you accidentally hit somebody if you accidentally do something the way that we console ourselves is we say i didn't mean to do it mm. <laughs> right and it's and it's the only thing that we can say that can possibly remedy that that sort of just unknown, unbearable negativity of like, look, there is no way possible. I could have anticipated this. I could have predicted this. But I need to say to myself, I didn't mean to do it to reconcile that just unbearable weight of something that could not have been predicted. Um, and, and so I, I do see elements of, of that and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm willing for that to be challenged, but I do think there's elements of, of the way we console ourselves with intention. And I think compassion is one of those things that we console ourselves with intention. 
but yeah. Well, I think you've written about this a little bit, but this is kind of where the question of forgiveness comes in. Yeah. In in a world without forgiveness, or how you know how is it possible to be able to in, in, like live in a space where bad things happen that we didn't intend, and yet they can you can trace them to your own hand. You know, like your hand is covered in blood. Um, how how do we live with that in a world where we can't theorize forgiveness in a world without grace. I mean, for me, those, those questions are really difficult. I mean, I, I do believe in grace. I do believe in forgiveness, but I, but, but they were achieved at a bloody cost. They were achieved through the death of God on the cross. And so it was, it's no, it's no light thing that there's grace and that there's forgiveness. But um, I'm so, I am, I'm in awe of that question of where I think, I think forgiveness is just very, very under theorized as a problem. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think both Julie Rashi and Derrida have impressed me with the way they understand forgiveness, mainly because for Rashi, forgiveness is the only thing that can remedy the gap between two subjects. It, it just, it basically acknowledges the other as they are, even if, even if it's this pure evilness, this pure suffering kind of being. And then Derrida has this wonderful line too, where he says, forgiveness is for the unforgivable. And he's talking mm-hmm. about this sort of pure forgiveness. But, mm-hmm. but, but to understand Derrida correctly, it, it's, it's to say that we have made forgiveness a calculated project. We have made forgiveness a pragmatic solution when we are against the grain. Okay, I see that I should forgive because it's not helping me with my relationships. Actually, for Derrida, it's that's reconciliation. That's what he calls reconciliation as a kind of calculation. It's necessary, but where is there room for this sort of forgiveness without calculation? And I think that's a very hmm. question because I think you could say that's us trying to trick ourselves again to deal, to somehow cushion the negativity of forgiveness. And and if I take Julie Resch seriously, I think forgiveness is like dying. (laughs) You know, it it is probably like something like hanging on the cross, knowing that it wasn't you that did it, right? Mm -hmm. You, but you are taking it. You're taking all of it. And I think that's why people don't like forgiveness because it, it is fundamentally like a kind of like I take all of it and I am dying with it because, you know, there's just nothing else to do. And, and nobody wants to make that maneuver because it's probably the most, you could say, there's there's no pragmatic thing about it. It's just, you just forgive. I mean, it's in the act itself. It's a pure negativity. It's a negative act. <laughs> Yeah, we still want to hold on to a little bit. Like we can say we forgave, but there's still a piece of us that holds ourselves back. Like maybe we'll bring it up in an argument again, or in our heart of hearts, there's still that burning bitterness. Um, uh, I think, you know, I mean, Nietzsche thinks about forgiveness quite a bit, interestingly enough. And I think that he, he connects forgiveness with forgetting because there's a sense in which like you have to be able to forget the thing truly to like wash it out of your mind. And which, as I say that, it makes me think of 
Um, it makes me think of the scriptures where it talks about God literally forgetting our sins, mm. that they're moved as far as the east is from the west, and that he literally remembers them no more. This this um, kind of Nietzschean figure of the master who can completely just forget that there's no sort of residual pain that is ailing him, that his that starts to kind of warp his vision and his behavior, but he can just forgive. There's, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but um, that's... Uh, Nietzsche's kind of touchstones for me. I don't know if you knew that, but anyways. I, no, I mean, I, I like that idea. I mean, I think forgetting is is something, I mean, I, I think the the emphasis on memory is something what I would call, we've used memory to simply exist for a logic of exchange, meaning like, oh, I remember that one time you did me dirty, so now I want reparations right? I want mm-hmm. to redeem yourself. And so it seems like we even weaponize memory as a way to sort of do this transgressive negative feedback loop with each other where it's like, we're constantly telling each other, you owe me this, you owe me this because you did this. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to really argue uh, to, to make someone do something for you out of, out of guilt. If you don't remember, <laughs> if you simply forget Right. And so there is something about our emphasis on wanting to remember what, what's that, what's that phrase now? It's like forgive, but never forget like that. That's it. Yeah. That, I, like, I would like to look into that statement. In a sort of yeah. Way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, um, that's like, uh, you know, forgive somebody, but, uh, you know, let, let your trauma still lash out. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. the body still remembers, you know, sort of thing. Like, and even though there is some like scientific basis for that, I think that there's something beautiful about us being able to transcend that. I I was thinking about, and I feel like there's something you wrote that's kind of vaguely connected to this, but um, it's interesting is that forgiveness is really the only thing that actually does solve the problem of another person wronging us. Because there's really, there's two options in that. There's either there's to there's the punishment or the reparation as you said and then there's the or there's the forgiveness those are really the two options and the thing is that the the punishment or the reparation can never replace the thing that was lost yeah like you know you, the conversation about reparations right now in this country relating to what african americans experienced like the reality is that the horrors and the, the disgusting things that they experienced could could never be repaid by any object, by any word, by any action that anyone could take in the present or in the future. Could it could never make it whole? No amount of money. Uh, that's not to say that there's not work to be done to um, yeah. undo some of the things that that were done, the things that we can take action on. But I think that like there's a like the idea of a reparation that somehow is a reconciliation is does a disservice to the suffering that happened. And ironically, it's actually only through forgiveness of the, the giving up and of the, the act of, of instead wiping it from the records of the, of the mind and the heart that actually does honor what happened. I think, I think much more than any sort of punishment or reparation ever could. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I agree. I, I think, I think that's what's like so concerning to me now is like 
sacrifice and forgiveness are just have become such laughable concepts in our mm. Like it's almost like ridiculous to even propose that as a solution. And and even and like I said before, even if we do utilize suffering and I mean um, forgiveness and sacrifice, it still seems to follow like I'll get something out of this. I will feel better or something. And I feel like the moment you do that, you are not actually forgiving because you're trying to get something out of that forgiveness. You're trying to get something out of that sacrifice. Like I think especially sacrifice. Like if, if you're trying to get something out of your sacrifice, it's not sacrifice. If you're trying to get something out of forgiveness, it's not forgiveness. You're just calculation on top of forgiveness. You're, you're trying to get something. You, you are actually doing a kind of reparation, not a forgiveness. Um, and, and that's what's lost. And I think forgiveness is and sacrifice is this kind of like, look, nothing can be done to mm. replace the lost object. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. So I will sacrifice for the other and I will forgive the other. That's it. It's that just pure, honest acknowledgement that the, the object is lost. And, and you see this with mm. the way people talk, you know, nostalgically talk about the past. Like they think they can get it back. And the same mm -hmm. thing with a progressive movement. They think that the lost object can be gained if you keep aiming towards the future. Um, it, to me, this all detracts us from really bearing that vulnerable negativity um, that we just we don't want to face, essentially. Yeah, I love that. It's forgiveness as just the honest acknowledgement of the loss of the object, that there is no getting it back. And I think that I, ironically, we can once we've actually just acknowledged that that's gone, we can start to pick up the pieces again. We can sit, we can see the situation for what it is, and we could say, okay, we're going to make a better world tomorrow, and we're going to start today. But in order to do that, we have to be able to acknowledge that what happened is never coming back, and that object is lost. Yeah, I mean, I. I've I think I, this is where like, I kind of like Zizek's idea, right? Like I'm, I'm sacrificing my nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. forgiving my nothing. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of like absolute recoil in this sense where it's like the moment you forgive in a kind of really honest way, um, it already ruptures you as a sort of new subject. I mean, and, and there's something now you could say you're, you're back to a kind of becoming of nothing. Mm -hmm. um, where you once again will probably discover another lost object to to go for, um, but yeah, yeah. Thank you for thank you for that great conversation, Javier. I really appreciate it. Is um is there anything else that you've been thinking about or reading lately that you uh you you want to share? Yeah, I mean, obviously Julie Reshi. <laughs> Because I've been reading, I, I read her entire book, uh, Negative Psychoanalysis. Um, loved it. Found it very uncomfortable. Um, and I think it was just something that, like, I find myself constantly wanting to place it somewhere, like, make use of it. And then I always find that contradiction where it's like, the moment I make use of it, it's 
negates her whole project, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even the last chapter of her book, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around because she kind of negates her own premises in the end. Um, and, and I think that's what she's pointing to is that there's just this, that even when we embrace negativity, we can always find a way, as Zizek says, like to have a hamster <laughs> and, and, and say that we're dealing with the negativity. But no, I, I think dealing with the negativity is the fact that you're extremely uncomfortable with it. If you're comfortable with your negativity, it's no longer negativity. And I think that's mm. what Reshi is saying. You could say that, yeah, I'm embracing suffering. I'm embracing reality as this sort of lack world. Um, but that's, that's sort of missing the point. It's, it's when you actually feel and encounter that negativity that you can even say those words. Um, it's probably best to not even say those words because it sort of tricks you into believing that you can, uh, really bear that negativity. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I yeah, there's about. a sense in which like that encounter with that negativity, what could be more real than the encounter with nothing? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of when you're on the threshold of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you, Javier. I would uh, I would just point out that um, Dr. Reshe, she occasionally teaches with GCAS, the Global Center for Advanced Studies. Um, I would recommend to check out um, gcas.ie. Uh, Dr. Crescent Davis started that organization. I took some classes there, worked on a degree that I never finished because I had a son. <laughs> Very difficult to finish a dissertation when you have a brand new kid. So did not complete that, but I, I recommend checking it out. They have an accredited master's in philosophy um, fully online. So it's a great school. Um, I'm not even just plugging this to you. I'm just telling my you know, listeners because I honestly, I think that there's a lot of quality people who occasionally teach there and Dr. Reshe is one of them. So if you want a chance to learn from her and from other people, uh, I, would, I would check that place out. Any, uh, any closing thoughts before we ended here, Javier? No, I mean, I'm just thankful. <laughs> it, was, mm. it was a good conversation, man. It was really good. All right. Thankfulness. We'll end on that. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to Samsara Audio. Um, Brief conversations about deep things, uh, religion, philosophy, psychoanalysis. Um, Please go ahead and leave us a review uh, or, you know, a comment. I I always love to hear about what is coming out of these conversations for you, what you're thinking about. Um, Thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.